Hello everyone and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our series with women leaders. I'm Ilana Beitel, I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with women who are leading and shaping the world in many ways and fields. In this episode, we are going to talk about that thing that makes the world go round, money. In this period of great change, with rivalry between the two largest economies in the world, the US and China, constantly increasing, with food and energy crises, with mounting debt crises in the developing economies, and possibly above all with the effects of the war in Ukraine, which includes much of the above and sanctions against Russia, we need to better understand how we have arrived at this complex economic and financial situation and where we go from here. To do this, we have with us two women who are undoubtedly very qualified to discuss these issues. Agathe Desmarais, Global Forecasting Director at the Economist Intelligence Unit. With a strong background in economics and policy analysis, she has also recently published a very well-received book on sanctions called Backfire. With her is Elina Rybakova, a fellow of the Peterson Institute for International Economics, an economist and expert on emerging markets in Eastern Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Her field of expertise includes the Russian economy, US-Russia relations, macro-financial stability, and macroeconomic research for investment decisions. Welcome, ladies. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here with you today. Thanks so much, and I look forward to the conversation. I very much look forward to the conversation too. And um, we will start as ever with both of you just telling us a little bit about your background and how you got to be the very impressive women you are today. Agat. Well, thank you so much for your kind words. The answer would be a bit random, I would say. I think that it is really useful to keep an open mind and be open to opportunities. And that's what I've tried to do during my career. So I never had a set plan of what I wanted to do. Um, in France, because I'm French, as you will have heard from my accent, I studied economics and international relations at university. And my goal was to go abroad after I would graduate. And this is what I did. I went to Russia, but that was a bit random. I thought that it was a very exotic destination to explore at the time. It was 2010, so a completely different era. Russia hadn't annexed Crimea um, at the time. So that's how I started my career in investment banking. Then I had the opportunity to work for the French Treasury in Moscow, covering Russia and Central Asia. So I did just that for three more years. And then I moved to the Middle East, still for a French treasury. I worked in Lebanon for a number of years, covering Middle Eastern countries for economic and financial affairs, and also sanctions, which is a topic that I try to specialize on at the moment. And finally, six years ago, I moved to London to be with my family. And I've been working since then for the Economist Intelligence Unit. And my current role is one of a global forecasting director. It sounds very fancy, but in reality, it is really about making sure that all of EIU's forecasts, when taken together, make some sense. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. And I love the idea that you just wanted to move around with your life because fluidity has to be the best thing. Elena. 
Thank you. And I do have to say that I'm extremely impressed that apart from all these things that Agatha is doing, she also wrote a book last year when all of us were thought that it would be nice to write a book or nice to have a book on sanctions. It would be very timely. She was the one actually who wrote it. And I strongly recommend everybody that they look it up and, and uh, read the book. From my background, so I'm from Latvia and uh, economics also was a bit random because this is where the Stockholm School of Economics in, in Riga opened up and I was the second intake and was offering scholarships. So I was planning to go maybe to medical school. I would have not managed to feed myself for seven, eight, how many years it is of the medical school, which was not offering any scholarships. So I went into economics. And I have to say, I'm very happy because uh, as we grow up, I, I don't believe that there is one profession that we absolutely have to be wedded to from the beginning. The world changes. I think we all have to be adaptable and our, each individual skill set can fit a whole range of different professions. And I think the era of us staying in one field throughout our career is also over. I think we're sort of like we used to in economics study Japanese employment, right? Even in Japan, it is <laughs> coming to an end. The new professions are emerging and I think one has to be adaptable. So I started my career in the late 90s at the IMF. I was very lucky to get into that program. I stayed there for many years, which gives you an opportunity to move among countries. And I think that's, and when I was leaving, I was about to move on Lebanon, actually. But, uh, but I got a nice opportunity to go to Moscow with investment banking. I, sp I came there in 2008 and then spent five years working on Russia CIS uh, for one of the banks. And then I thought that it's important to keep your sort of foot in the pol with the policy as well. So I had some stints at the think tanks, as well as the different asset managers. And then four years ago, we moved back to Washington, D.C. So now with the war in um, Europe, I have moved to Peterson, as, as you mentioned. And I'm also head of international expansion of the Kiev School of Economics Institute. So we all talk a lot about Ukraine, but they're doing wonderful fact and research-based uh, analysis of policy development. So I want to make sure their voices are heard. Well, that's also absolutely fantastic. We're going to start um, with basics because many people don't know a lot of the things that are just bandied about every single day as though they are just obvious. The first question is, and I want short answers, what does an economist do? I think a macroeconomist tries to make sense of the global markets via simplified models. And inherently, you will be wrong. You know, it's a model which tries to uh, sort of simplify reality. And we, there is no AI model or such <clears throat> that will simplify it fully accurately. Neither we want to, because we want to have faster responses. If it's going to take you 100 years to explain the reality 100 years ago, it's not helpful. So it's basically a way of uh, simplifying reality in a timely way. And I think in this way, it sounds exciting. I really like that definition, Elena. I really enjoy it. I think my definition would be that economists are trying to make sense of what's happening in the world using data. I think data are very important. So that's the first one. So say you're taking a look at an economy. Are people employed, unemployed? Do they find it easy to find a job? Is there a lot of inflation? Is there trade? What's in the supermarkets? So economists try to make sense of this. I think also economists try to help policymakers take decisions. And I think that it's very important here to recognize that there are many different 
um, schools of thought in economics. Some people will be more liberal than others. Others will want more state um, intervention. So many different ways to see the world. And finally, some economists, and that's what I do at the EIU, we're what is called forecasters. So a lot of people really don't like that. We try to predict what is going to happen using models, um, econometric models, a lot of data to try to predict what is going to happen. And that is sometimes very important for our companies, for our governments, for policymakers to know what is going to happen to a given economy, for instance, if it is placed under sanctions to try to be- take the best policy decisions. Well, I think both of you are very, very good ambassadors for your profession. So if I'm to understand this correctly, you um, would say that an economist is somebody that looks at the world and presents it in through economic terminology and in models and quantifies things in one way or another. Is that a fair way of looking at it? Yes, I think it's a very accurate way of looking at it, yes. So now the next question, of course, what is the difference between monetary and fiscal policies, which often comes up? So these are different fields of economics. So for instance, monetary policy will focus on inflation, on currency movements, that is to say, is the currency appreciating or depreciating against other currencies, that is, is its value going up or down. So that's, yes, inflation, currency movements, interest rates, that's essentially often linked to what central banks do everything that has to do with the, with the currency. Fiscal is completely different because fiscal is about budgets. That is to say spending and also resources. So spending will be, for instance, on education programs or on justice or on foreign affairs, aid, etc. And resources will be mostly taxes. Uh, so it's a bit different. Uh, and that's usually the field of treasury departments, budget departments, governments, whereas central banks, that's a key thing, are, at least in Western democracies, independent um, from um, their governments. So where do they get their money from? Oh, they're paid, but the idea, they are civil servants, but the idea is that governments are not supposed to be influencing the decisions of central banks. Because if you cut rates, you're going to boost economic growth. That's what we're seeing in Turkey these days. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a really really good idea. Of course, it can boost the credentials of a president that wants to be re-elected, as is happening in Turkey these days, but it's not really great policy. So central bank independence is usually very important. Elena, do you have something to add? It's it's hard to add to this. I think it's a great explanation. I would uh, only say that it took us a while to come back to the separation or independence of central banks. You know, we it's probably took us 30 years or so to understand finally what is the best way of the so-called inflation targeting and, and maintain the independence of the central bank. And even with the forward guidance, there are some questions about it, you know, whether we can talk more about these details. And then there is, I would also mention the third aspect of economics, which often comes back, which is sort of in the, in, in the middle with the structural setup of the economy. For example, you know, if you're thinking about Ukraine right now, of course, monetary and fiscal is very important. But if we think about reconstruction, we need to think, do we want to be Poland 30 years ago? Or do we want to think where Europe will be 20 years from now? And maybe we should reconstruct or do structural reforms in Ukraine in a way that it fit, makes it fit into the puzzle of where Europe will be 20, 30 years from now. Excellent. Well, 
I don't disagree with anything that you said, nor would I, because I'm an historian and not an economist. But um, all of that, I think, is wonderful information, first of all, and also wonderful background for us to move on to, if you want, the, the core subject that we were about to discuss here today, we were discussing before amongst us, which is sanctions. So here we come to our third body of definition. What are sanctions and why are they levied? I'm happy to go first. I would say first what sanctions are not, because I think there is a lot of confusion and I tend to be quite picky about what sanctions are not. They are not trade embargoes. They are not tariffs. They are not export controls. So I think this is very important to say. And the listeners cannot see us, but I see Elena nodding. <laughs> I tend to be quite picky about this because sometimes in the media, we see sanctions, the word sanctions being applied to virtually everything. And this is not correct. I would say that there are two main types of sanctions, and I'm sure Elena will have to add to this. You can have individual sanctions on people. Essentially, you will freeze their assets held in Western countries, and they will also face a travel ban. So say a Russian oligarch that is under sanctions, his assets in Europe are frozen and he cannot travel to Europe. That's very basic. You can also target companies, in which case these companies cannot do business with Western firms. I will put Europe and the US in the same basket here um, under the Western firms category. And you can also have sanctions on entire economic sectors, uh, for instance, the energy sector, the financial sector, or the military sector, in which case all companies in these sectors, while well, they become no-go, Red flags, you can't do business with them. And finally, but I will let Elina comment on that. You can have sanctions that target, for instance, central banks' reserves, but I'm sure that she will want to, to comment on this one. I, I, I don't want to have such a lengthy answer. Thank you. I would put exactly what, uh, so what sanctions and other things, I would put them as part of economic statecraft. And I think this is relatively new or rather old fashion that came back in, sort of the economic statecraft, where we're trying to think about economics, foreign policy, national security, defense, as sort of together. And we're trying to cross-meet, you know, the objectives of, uh, of these different uh, policies or, or sort of uh, disciplines. And why am I saying it? it's relatively new or sort of there is a return of that kind of thinking is because for the last 20, 30 years, especially since inception of Europe, we're used to thinking that we have rules-based economic sphere where we're focused just on economics. And there are certain wonderful sort of well-researched conclusions about the independence of central banks or benefits of free trade that we have um, established and we all could benefit from. And that's why we had rules-based WTO system and uh, an appellate body in it. But why am I saying that we're seeing the return is that now we see much more mixed sort of between the foreign policy objectives or defense objectives or national security objectives, for example, in the case of Ukraine, and bringing in economics into that. And we can talk more. I see Agatha raising her hand. She would like to give a comment. And we absolutely have to spend more time on this topic. So I think so sanctions, thinking that, part of the economic statecraft and very multidisciplinary approach. Just to add to that, when we call them as tools of economic statecraft, it essentially means using economic tools to advance foreign policy, which is what Elena said. Which is a very, very good way to look at it. And it's really important to underline here that sanctions were not invented for Russia. Um, if we go back, um, and I'm sure both of you can speak to this quite a lot, um, 
Latin America, there's been sanctions imposed since 1990, I believe, at the very least. But Cuba's been under sanctions, U.S. sanctions for a very long time, Nicaragua, Venezuela. Um, so it is a tool that is obviously used quite a lot. Can we just look at that point of it, too, for a second? Why did governments, especially Western governments, I would say, decide to use sanctions as a tool of statecraft? Well, I guess the, the thinking here goes, there are limitations to what the military or foreign policy can do on one hand. And on the other hand, there is a feeling that if a country wants to benefit from the global rule-based access to economic benefits of international relations and, and international integration, when that it should behave by certain rules. And if you're planning to invade the, or if you're invading a neighbor, maybe you shouldn't benefit from the advantages of accessing US, European and other markets uh, from the economics point of view. So I would also recommend there is a book, I think, which has grow grown increasingly longer with years by uh, Jeff uh, Schott at uh, Peterson, who was one of the people working on sanction, I think, in probably 30 years ago administration in the US, or maybe less. But uh, yes, I think 30 years ago. And also we can remember that even on the Soviet Union there were sanctions, you know, when uh, it was uh, Afghanistan and Jackson Vanik. Um, so, yes, yeah, sanctions have been used uh, historically many times. Of course, I still um, find, it, find it frustrating. There is still relatively little research in terms of the sanctions achieving objectives and also communication around sanctions. You know, just like an inflation targeting, it took us a while to figure out how to communicate about inflation as a central bank. We're still, I think, not very good at communicating about sanctions objectives. And we're trying to use this one tool, in this case sanctions, but it could be sort of export controls or trade measures, and saying we're going to achieve regime change, we're going to end the war, we're going to prevent wars. And there is all these objectives being hanged on the one tool, and it usually doesn't work. If you have one tool, you usually sort of be able to achieve one objective. So I completely agree. My take is that sanctions have become very popular because of three reasons. The first one is that they appear to be very cheap tools, essentially, for governments to implement and to actually try to do foreign policy. So I'm going to, to give an example. It, it costs very little to the US to impose sanctions on a country because sanctions are effectively implemented by the private sector. That is called compliance, and it is up to the private sector and banks to check that all the transactions that they process comply with sanctions. So very cheap. Second thing is that they're very fast, and I can speak here from experience. You only need possibly one night to implement sanctions when something happens. You have a few civil servants that are spending their night drafting sanctions. So very, very quick. And finally, as Elena has said, they fill in the void between empty diplomatic declarations, clearly in the case of Russia, I don't think that any diplomatic declaration is going to impress Vladimir Putin, and deadly military interventions. And in this void between these two extreme ends of the spectrum, I think that we only have sanctions. And just one more thing, I completely agree with Elena that we need to be very clear about the objectives of sanctions. I'm sure that we will go back to that in the case of Russia. But I think that oftentimes when there is a lack of clarity regarding the objectives of sanctions, then this fuels the debate about the supposed ineffectiveness of sanctions. In the case of Russia, this debate is really raging and both Elena and myself are on the side of people saying, no, sanctions are working. It's just that maybe we need to have a clear think about the objectives before taking a look at the effectiveness. 
in, in many ways, what you're talking about there, it seems to me, is the difference between a tactical and a strategic move. And there's often a miscomprehension that strategy is a plan. Strategy isn't a plan. It's more in a long-term direction, which you adapt as you go. Tactics is how you implement it in the place at the time. That is the plan. I've always understood sanctions to be a strategic tool, that you don't necessarily see an overnight result. But let's be fair, before we get to Russia and Ukraine, which is the heart of the matter currently, we can also look at Iran. Now, Iran, and that reflects also, I think, that sanctions are both a tool of punishment and a tool of coercion, or at least they're meant to be in one way or another. Um, Iran has been under sanctions for a very long time. Have they worked there, do you think? I think it depends. I think that if you take a look at the nuclear deal, Yes, sanctions have worked. I don't think that anyone is denying that sanctions were instrumental to bring Iran to the negotiating table to conclude the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement in 2015. I think it was very clear that sanctions led to an economic collapse in Iran, high inflation, a recession, uh, very, very difficult economic conditions. And so the Iranian population elected, and I'm going to caveat what I'm going to say very strongly, by Iranian standards, a reformist, Hassan Rouhani, who had pledged to get sanctions lifted so that the Iranian economy would be in a better shape. He was elected. He delivered on this pledge. So I think that in the case of Iran, until 2015, it worked. I think that afterwards, there were three years when the problem was sanctions lifting was disappointing for Iran because Western companies didn't go back in droves to Iran because they feared that the US would get out of the deal, which is exactly what happened under Trump in 2018. And since then, actually, it goes back to your point about the lack of clarity around objectives. What is exactly the objective of current US sanctions against Iran? I don't think that's always very clear. And so I'm of the view, but I hope that I will be proved wrong, that the nuclear deal will not be revived because Iran probably thinks that it has nothing to gain from making concessions to get sanctions being lifted, especially if a Republican president were to be elected in the US in 2024, I think that's that's the Iran in calculation. I would just add from uh, from to this wonderful explanation is that on the sanctions, though it seems in the beginning that it's inconceivable to think about lifting sanctions, but I think we should always have a plan for lifting sanctions. Uh, we should prepare it in advance and then stick to it, of course, uh, we all live, thankfully, in democratic countries where there is change of government and maybe different people will come to power and, and will change that plan and we'll have to live with it. That's the beauty of living in the democracy. It's not authoritarian world. We say 10 years from now we commit to do this and, and it will not change absolutely. But ideally we would like to. And I think Iran is an example where certain commitments were made. Of course, corporates do not come back quickly and we cannot change that. But on the government policy side, especially the U.S. administration was drawing without any sort of basis relative to, to its partners of the agreement, I think that definitely threw a very strong negative message that we're not reliable. And Iran might comply with certain rules that other partners of the agreement will, will uh, find acceptable, but just one partner without any sort of without any substantiated basis can withdraw from it. And the U.S., dollar and the US market are just so important that US withdrawing from such an agreement basically pulls the plug on the whole agreement.
And that's obviously what happened. I think part of the problem there also, if I may put it, is from the government and or if you want international or policy perspective, is that all of these things have become what is known, that horrific, in my opinion, uh, terminology, part of the toolbox. And the problem is that the toolbox is now so laden and the people who often do politics are not necessarily very experienced in um, be it military, be it economic, um, be it other areas, that they just don't understand that a tool can be shaped, can be um, ended, can be lifted and put back on, Can all kinds of things can happen to it. So I think maybe economists would do well to sort of try and explain their own tools in the toolbox. So this, of course, brings us to, to, to the heart of the matter today, which is Ukraine, Russia, and the sanctions on Russia. Um, both of you have come out, as it were, and said that you think that they are working. Can each of you explain why you think that is the case? Also, can you start, sorry, with explaining what are the sanctions against Russia and why you think they're working? I'll start by first explaining what were the tools of economic statecraft used against Russia last year. And here it brings us that it was mostly financial sector sanctions. We did not yet use the embargo, although it was passed, but it was not implemented. And we did not yet use to the full extent export controls, although we started. So the most important sanctions were uh, financial sector measures, basically on the reserves of the central bank. The central bank reserves were arrested or rather immobilized, I should say. There, there's a lot of legal technicalities around the term, so let's say immobilized. And then many of the Russian banks were put under uh, sanctions in a sense, whether it may be they were on the SDN list, which is the US specific uh, list, or, or maybe removed from ability to message with other banks via swift messaging system. So there was a whole range of financial sector sanctions implemented. The financial center sanctions had an impact on the Russian economy. You know, before the full-fledged invasion, we were expecting Russia to grow maybe two and a half percent, three and a half. I'm curious also what was Agatha's forecast in, uh, at the time. But there was a strong post-COVID recovery. Russia was doing very well. Uh, the economy was stable. Uh, central banks started hiking rates well in advance. You know, central bank is very sort of uh, strong institution in Russia. Even compared to the Fed and ACB, they were fighting inflation well in good time. So they, they were having a sort of very good policy mix. They were planning to tighten fiscal policy in 2022, and the economy was sort of on track to have a relatively strong performance. So what happened uh, last year, according to Rostat, the economy contracted by about 2%. So even without discussing the accuracy of Rostat's data, we see a swing of almost five percentage points uh, in terms of growth. So that is a direct impact. So that's uh, what happened. The other measures like export controls and also embargo slash G7 cap on oil uh, exports, and we probably should explain to our listeners uh, a little bit more what that means, but these measures are much harder to implement and much harder to sort of you almost have to keep on running to stay in place. So first, the embargo together with the cap did not come into effect until the end of 2022. So we cannot say whether it was effective or not. It just didn't come into effect yet. On the other hand, on the export controls, we do worry that there is a lot of evasion of export controls and Russia was capable of receiving a lot of the goods or similar goods via third countries, meaning Turkey, UAE, of course, China and many others. So I'll stop here and, and let Agatha clean up any, you know, any inconsistencies and explain better to our listeners. There is nothing to clean up. Um, I think 
I, I actually just checked while you were talking. Our forecast was for a growth of 2.6% in Russia last year before the war started. And then, of course, we revised that forecast. I think actually to answer your question, um, Elena, it's easier from my perspective, to talk about the objectives of sanctions, what they were not and what they are not and what they are. Sanctions against Russia are not about provoking an economic collapse. I think there were political declarations, certainly in France, but this is not possible. Russia is the ninth largest economy in the world and it still has big financial reserves. So that's not realistic. It doesn't work like that. The second thing is that sanctions are not meant to completely change Putin's calculus regarding Ukraine. We know from 2014, actually, that this is not going to happen. And finally, this is not about regime change. If there is one thing that history shows us, it's that sanctions, when their goal is about regime change, it pretty much never, ever works. So it's not about that. It's about three things from my perspective. The first goal of sanctions is about sending a diplomatic message of resolve and unity to both Russia and Ukraine. And I think from that perspective, it worked very well. Elina mentioned the block. I say blocking for reserves, by the way, but I know all the technicalities are very, very tricky. But my go-to word is blocking of these reserves. I don't think Putin expected that. So I think the message was very strong. The second thing is about waving on the ability of Russia to wage war against Ukraine. We've seen a recession in Russia last year, although I would very much like to comment on Russia's statistics and why GDP doesn't mean anything in Russia these days. We've seen a recession and that will make it harder for Russia to finance the war because preserving social stability is very costly, financing the war is very costly, and actually the costs are going to increase as time passes. I think it's going to be very difficult in the long run, which goes back to your point about the fact that sanctions are a long-term tool. And finally, the third goal is one about the long term. It's about a slow asphyxiation of the Russian energy sector, denying the Russian energy sector the ability to access financing and technology to develop new oil and gas fields. So that's in a nutshell my view. And that's why when I assess sanctions against these goals, I think that they are working. Thank you, Agathe. I think both of you have explained extremely well the strategic, if we want to put it that way. Uh, one thing is missing, as you pointed out, Elena, everything to do with the caps, which is very complicated. So since you're both so brilliant, which one or both of you can explain in simple terms to the layperson what is a cap on prices and why you can or cannot impose it? I will talk about the cap as in the desire to have a cake and eat it too. That's my simplest way of putting it. Let's see if we succeed. The, so. The history of the cap, the brief and affectionate history of the cap is um, European Union announced an embargo on Russian oil and also provision of shipping and insurance services for Russian shipment of oil. In, uh, I think it was June uh, 2022, it was uh, passed then with the implementation in the end of 2022, early 23. So that meant that from the period when it's implemented, end of the year, beginning of 23, Russia, European Union would not buy any more Russian oil with some exemptions and also would not provide Russia with any shipping or insurance services. And Russia relies on European shipping and insurance services also for shipment to other countries. So India and, and China, they also get support from the European shippers and insurers. So that was the embargo. Then what happened is that some members of G7, and I think probably mostly the US, got really worried that if this were to happen, the oil price would increase massively. 
It would have implications for the multilateral unity for sanctions, as sometimes U.S. Treasury puts, but also it potentially could undermine the, the, the effect, meaning that Russia would not sell to Europe, but would receive such a high price that it would be happy anyway. So that was the concern. Why am I saying having the cake and eat it too? Is because eventually U.S. Treasury, after some sort of fuzzy communication over the summer, it's finally settled on the messaging that we would like to fl- have Russian oil flow to the market. This is the objective of the cap. And at the same time, reduce revenues to Russia. And I do have a feeling that at least for the U.S., the cap is much more important about letting Russian oil flow to the market. And the reduction of revenues to Russia is more like a secondary or small objective. It's still an important objective, but it's a secondary small objective. So already with this inherent tension in the, in the objectives, of course, that makes implementation so much harder. And we already published a paper using uh, custom statistics, and we will publish a follow-up soon, which shows that a lot of shipments are going above the price cap. And there is a lot of uncertainty, and there is now a lot of fragmentation in the oil market, partially because of the embargo, but also the price cap, which reduces our visibility. But what we do see from the various data is that a lot of shipments, especially to China, especially from the Pacific port Cosmino, and now even OFAC and Treasury made a comment about it a few days ago, is that the shipments are going about the cap. So it seems like that the embargo had an effect and the cap is sort of a, a less clear-cut tool. And I'll let Agata speak more because I'm still sort of making up my mind about these tools. It goes back to our definition of economic statecraft, using economic tools to advance foreign policy. And it's all about, as Elena has said, reducing revenues for Russia, because Russia uses revenues from energy experts, which make up around 60% of experts, to finance the war in Ukraine. So I think that the main idea is how can we reduce the revenues of Russia? I think it's useful when we have a think about the price cap Um, I think it's useful to go back to 2014 because at the time, after the annexation of Crimea and Russia starting to back separatist rebels in the Donbass region of Ukraine, then at the time already the US wanted to impose measures on Russia's energy exports. And at the time, it was Europe that said, wait, we can't do that because we're really dependent on Russian energy. And I think this is very important to keep in mind because even after the invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, it was unthinkable in the beginning, the beginning of the war, that Europe would impose an embargo on Russian oil. But actually Putin shot himself in the foot because he turned off the gas tap to Europe. And so he showed that he was willing to weaponize energy and gas to inflict maximum damage on European economies. And I think it changed their thinking of European policymakers. And it led to the adoption of unconceivable measures previously, European embargo on Russian oil, and also the oil price cap. So Elina has given a definition of it. Essentially, it's it's all about if you use a European company, an insurer, shipping company, whatever, the price cannot be above $60 per barrel everywhere around the world. Even if Russia is shipping this to an African country, if a European company or an American company is involved somehow, then the price cap applies. The final thing that I would just say is that this also shows the concern, and I think it's been very important and very positive from Western countries about the global south with regards to the side effects of sanctions. Because why not simply impose an embargo on Russian oil? Well, because it would send oil prices spiking 
and it would have a detrimental impact on developing economies and it would fuel Russian propaganda that sanctions are fueling energy insecurity, food insecurity, whatever is happening according to Russia is because of sanctions, which is very funny because Russia also says sanctions aren't working. And I think that this concern is also one of the reasons why Western countries went for a price cap. So no big impact on the price of oil globally. And I think that this is very positive that the concerns of developing countries were taken into account. Just a short question on that. If they're transporting oil from somewhere else, can European shippers and insurers charge more? If the oil, for example, is originating for the sake of argument from the US or if it's originating from another country, um, does the price cap apply still or does it only apply to Russian energy? applies to Russian energy. Excellent. And because the, the idea is to have a price cap that would mean that the price of Russian oil is below the price of global oil. It's also worth mentioning, I think, that Russia not only claims that um, it's the EU that's sanctions, it's also applying the sanctions on fertilizer and on grain, which is why it's not getting into Africa. We know that that is not true, but Russia is claiming that in various African countries. So it's interesting that to use sanctions as a tool at the very least of communication and to say that we can do or we're suffering and you're suffering because um, the West is doing this in one way or another. Let me be devil's advocate things you two have been talking about. The US is making a lot of money on this war and Europe is losing a lot of money on this war um, in very many ways. Europe has had to buy a lot more expensive energy. Europe has had to cut itself off from uh, Russian energy, which most probably it shouldn't have um, been uh, buying to such an extent and being dependent on such an extent to start with. Um, Every time we hear that the U.S. is delivering another billion dollars worth of military aid, that is going to American in many ways. Is there not a danger of economic imbalance and perception that the U.S. is trying to take advantage of um, this war against to also gain some foothold against or, or to, to, to lower the economic capability of the EU? This is devil's advocate stuff. I think that if you take a look at the impact of the war on the global economy last year, certainly it wasn't positive <laughs> for anyone. I think that the war in Ukraine has had a big impact on the global economy. So that's the first thing that I would say. And the war in Ukraine, which I should mention is the decision of Vladimir Putin, sent commodities prices spiking, which had a big impact on inflation, including in the US, even though the US is a bit more shielded. Um, from inflation, energy inflation than Europe. So I don't think that it was positive for Western economies. The other thing that I'm very careful about is not to invert cause and consequence of these prices and the global economic downturn is the invasion of Ukraine. It's not the other way around. It's not because of sanctions. There are no sanctions at the moment on Russia's gas exports, for instance. It is Russia that decided to turn off the gas tap. And as we discussed, Western countries have been very careful not to send oil prices spiking. So I think that we should be very careful about the phrasing because the root cause of these issues is put Ukraine. I think that we need to be we need to be super careful about that one. And finally, from a long-term perspective, I think that Europe to get rid of its dependency on Russian hydrocarbons will be positive for European economies, you know, having more LNG imports, um, developing renewables, having a more diverse mix of energy suppliers. I think in the long run, it shows that Putin's bet has really badly backfired with weaponizing energy. And I think it will be positive for the European Union in, in the long run. 
I think it's important for us, it's an important lesson for, for us, meaning countries against the Russia's war on Ukraine, is to strengthen the messaging. Because uh, when there is ambiguity and confusion in the messaging, then that gives an opportunity for Russian authorities to use that to their advantage. And I think uh, I do get sometimes questions from the reporters, all oh, sanctions are causing global spike in food prices. I'm like, how is that possible? Ukraine is one of the largest providers of food, uh, including to Middle East and Africa. Their ports are blocked. They used to export more than 80, I think, I'd say 90% of uh, their grain via the ports, which are currently being bombed. So what do sanctions have to do with it? But, you know, if we're not clear in terms of how we communicate and our messaging, then that gives an opportunity. So I think on the food prices, that should be definitely much more clear. It's the war that's causing the food price uh, to spike. And Russia itself went into the grain deal because it was uh, in a way into it. It's not because it was so concerned about the global south. That's one part. And on the commodity prices, again, definitely Europe was hurt more relatively to the U.S., but I think U.S. also felt an impact. You know, U.S. companies did have investments in Russia and now trying to extract themselves from, from Russia. And also oil price uh, is, is very important for the U.S. Uh, as well, while the gas potential is more important for Europe. It should be added, though, that uh, the U.S. has now become the biggest uh, exporter or the biggest source of import of LNG for Europe, which has happened just, again, emphasizing that the cause of this is the war in Ukraine, not the desire of the US to do that. But it is now officially, I think, the biggest source of energy um, in Europe, replacing the gas that come um, only and, and directly from Russia. Ladies, this is a wonderful conversation. I think everybody's getting um, a lesson 101 in economics. We're moving towards the end of it, unfortunately. But because of that, I want to ask you one last question. What is going to happen with the sanctions in Russia and how do you think they're going to play out over the next um, few years? Because they're going to be there for a few years, because I think we can all agree that the war is not going to end this year and very probably not next year. Um, Elena? I think we should be ready for the protracted sort of trench war on sanctions. You know, it's maybe less exciting than announcements of new packages. And there are furthermore measures can be announced and implemented, you know, including some other exports of Russian commodities, but and maybe for further financial sector and foreign company engagement in Russia. All these further measures can be announced, but but at this stage it's critical to implement and force and augment as needed the existing sanctions. And that is much less exciting. It means working with the customs officials all over the world, across Europe, trying to coordinate the U.S. export control numbers of products with the harmonized trade system. How exciting does that sound? And explaining that maybe that should be included in the invoices that you pay, you submit to your banker when you need a payment. You know, so it is this little nitty gritty, which maybe doesn't come across as uh, glamorous when we're making announcements on the big screen, but are equally important for, for us to be successful. Because always when there is this money to be made, there's all, there are always unscrupulous actors, including from the Western, so-called Western side, sort of the kleptocracy and enablers that will be happy to make money and facilitate Russia's uh, avoidance of the oil price cap or sanctions. So I think we can take two different perspectives to answer your question. We can take the medium-term perspective-ish, short-term, medium-term, and the long-term perspective. And I'll do something that you're not supposed to do. I'll start with long-term, which is usually not great. We're supposed to, to start with the other one. But long-term, I think that unfortunately, and I hope 
I hope I'm wrong. I don't think that the war is going to end anytime soon. I agree with Belina. I think this is going to be a protracted conflict, no end in sight. So I think that sanctions are going to remain in place for a very, very long time. I actually don't see any sign of mending ties between Western countries and, and Russia. So I think that this will lead to a decoupling, well, actually an even deeper decoupling of global supply chains. You'll have Western supply chains on the one hand and China slash Russia, because Russia is China's vassal on the other end. The key question to me is where will emerging countries B, who will they side with? Russia is a key exporter of grains, of energy, of metals, of gold, of fertilizers, of cooking oils. I think that it will remain such a supplier. It will try to reorient exports. It's already doing so towards emerging countries. So we'll really see this decoupling, this fragmentation of the global trade landscape. So that's the long-term perspective. The short-term, medium-term perspective, I think there are two key priorities to me, to my mind. The first one is about implementation, exactly as Elena has said. It's not very sexy, but it is really important. I think there are two things here. We'll probably want for a Europe, from a European perspective to have a more harmonized implementation of sanctions because sanctions in the European Union are currently adopted at the European level, but implemented at the member state level, which means that member states can have different interpretations of sanctions law. It's law after all. Lawyers see a number of different things in the same um, text. So I think this will be very important to close loopholes and also to get third countries on board. I'm thinking of Turkey here, which has become a massive exporter of semiconductors to Russia, despite the fact that Turkey doesn't even have a single semiconductor factory. So there is a mystery here. There are also other countries, such as the United Arab Emirates or Serbia or Kazakhstan, China, of course, which seem to have boosted trade ties with Russia. So implementation. And finally, disinformation. We've touched upon this. I think that Russian disinformation about the supposed impact of sanctions is very, very strong, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. And I really see a challenge to Western democracies here, because this is really disinformation. It's about fueling resentment against Western democracies, and that advances Russian interests. And I think that this will be really important to tackle. But sometimes I fear that this problem isn't acknowledged enough in Western countries, but acknowledging it will be really a first step to tackling it. Absolutely. Everything that's going on right now, um, I was recently at a conference about sub-Saharan Africa and disinformation on many, many issues appears to be one of the biggest issues that they're facing on the continent. I can't remember which countries. One of the ministries found that there was a parallel website to their ministry, which had been established by unknown trolls or hackers um, that disseminated entirely different information than the official one. Ladies, thank you both very, very much. That was really um, a great conversation. That's a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Thank you so much to our guests, Agathe Marais and Elina Rybakova. We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Keep listening to our conversations and support us with a subscription on your podcast platform. Leave us a five star on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And of course, add to the conversation with your comments. We're on all media as Wise Brussels. So reach out on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and even TikTok. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel, together with Florence Ferrando, and we'll be back very soon with another great conversation.